Thank you for listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church. We exist to seek the glory of God for the good of Brookhaven. We do this through worship that is reformed, discipleship that's relational, and mission that's neighborly. If you want to know more about Christianity or our church home, please visit our website, faithbrookhaven.org. Now for today's podcast. How do you know that a story is going to be magical? You know, not magic like sorcery or spells or stuff like that, but how do you know a story will be magic? It's going to be moving, that it'll be special, and that it means something. Really, think about it. How do you know something is going to be good? Maybe you'll hear something like this. Once upon a time. Maybe you'll hear something like, it was the night before Christmas. Or maybe you'll hear my personal favorite, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Look, when we hear these things, we are being prepared, we're being told to expect something exciting, to expect something wonderful. You see, the church, for thousands of years, through this season that we call Advent, the preparation for Christmas, studying the coming of Christ, has told us that Jesus came into this world and that His life, it's one of those stories. It's one of those things that is meant to make us dream. That when the light of the world comes into the world, it's meant to bring light to our eyes. It's supposed to make us dream. You see, God sent His Son, and He is the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is exactly God. And when He came into this world, He didn't come into this world as an idea. He didn't come into this world to represent a set of moral principles. He didn't come into this world to be some kind of spiritual guru or spiritual assistant or advisor. No, Jesus came into this world as a king. That's really important. Jesus came into this world as a king. And He promises to come back as a king. Jesus tells us that He is the King of the kingdom and He brings the gospel. That's what we're about to read in Hebrews. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus came as the King. So take your Bibles or use what's printed in your bulletin and read with me now from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. He gave it to us so that we could know him and because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father, your your word is good news. Jesus is good news. Help us now as we study your word and reflect on this passage and see what it means for us today to glorify you in all we do in word and deed. We are thankful for who you are. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. All right, so what we just read in Hebrews chapter 1 
Uh, it kind of has this theme that I think pops out of the text. It's this theme of God speaking. Everybody that looks at this text says it's about God speaking. So what is he saying? How is he speaking? Well, the writer of Hebrews clearly wants us to see that there is kingly language being used. We see things like Jesus is the heir of everything. We see that he's at the right hand of the majesty on high, that Jesus is more superior to all of the heavenly beings. And so what's being made abundantly clear is that Jesus is king of everything. He is king of the earth where he came and put on flesh and dwelt among us, and he's the king of heaven where he rules and reigns and dwells right now. So we see that God is speaking and he's speaking through a king that the king has spoken and he's given us his word. So I think our passage actually chops up this word into two, two types of words. You see, in verse 1, what we see is we see the king's first word. And then in verses 2 to 4, what we see is the king's final word. So that's what we're going to look at, the king's first word and then the king's final word. So what is the first word? Well, it's interesting. If you look back at verse 1, it has this really profound opening to the book of Hebrews. But what you don't see there is who this book is by. There's no author. It doesn't tell us who wrote this book. That's actually kind of unique in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's not all that exciting to have a text that we don't know who it's written by. It's actually pretty prominent. But in the New Testament, it's actually unique to not know who wrote the book. You know, some people think maybe Paul wrote Hebrews. Some people think maybe this other famous preacher named Apollos, he may have written Hebrews. But whoever ended up writing Hebrews, clearly they understood their audience. They were the same. You see, if you look back at verse 1, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That our is really important. It's a collective. It's saying, we're the same. This is a Jewish audience. And so whoever wrote Hebrews knew their Old Testament. They knew their Hebrew Bible. They knew the law. And so when you see this connection of fathers and prophets, you should automatically think about several people. It's really important when you see it in the New Testament. It's people like Abraham, who we read about in our Advent reading. You know, Abraham, the inheritor of the promise, the father of many nations, the one who is going to be blessed in order that he may bless the world, the one whose firstborn son he is told to go and sacrifice, and yet God provides a sacrificial lamb. God's first word, the king's first word, is through someone like Abraham. But then if you go forward, you have people like Jacob, who's Abraham's grandson. Jacob, the one who stole his brother's promise, the inheritance from his father, the one who wrestled with God and establishes the nation of Israel. Jacob is one of God's first words. God is speaking through him. Moses, the Hebrew boy who ends up becoming the prince of Egypt, who sets God's people free and leads them to the promised land who is given the law of God written on stone tablets. Moses, who is the chief prophet by which all other prophets are measured by. God is speaking through him. He's saying, this is my first word. It comes through these people. Moses is someone whose anger and rebellion and sin actually kept him from entering the very land that he led God's people to. The king's first word is speaking through someone like Moses. It's Elijah who calls fire down from heaven. It's King David, the first true king of Israel, a man according to God's heart, the shepherd boy who slew Goliath and who was the king of the land and whose son, whose heir, is promised to reign and rule on the throne forever. It's these men, it's this history, it's those people. This is what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. That God's first word came to us in bits and pieces. It came to us in little parts. 
You see, God's faithfulness is shown through him rescuing the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, bringing them into the land. God's righteousness is displayed in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law, how the people should live. God's heart is revealed through David. David is said to be a man chosen according to the heart of God. God's justice is unleashed during the Babylonian exile. God's mercy is shown through the prophets who beg and plead for God's people to repent and return to Him. You see, the king's first word is everything from shepherd boys to burning bushes to fiery pillars, shady trees, and talking donkeys. Everything, all of God's first word, is actually pointing to something. It's pointing to something more real. It's pointing to something more exciting. I know, what could be more exciting than talking donkeys? But the king's first word, it's pointing to something, but you have to know what you're looking for to understand it. You see, I really enjoy process. I enjoy seeing how we get from one thing to another thing. So I'll watch videos sometimes of um, wood lathing or carving wood on a lathe, um, people doing crazy stuff with epoxy and making these awesome bowls and cups and stuff like that. Or I've even watched like a piece of leather be stretched and pulled and teared and stamped and glued and stitched and you make a boot. Um, but one of the things that I've recently found myself falling into a rabbit hole watching uh, is this show called Fool Us. You guys ever heard of this show, Fool Us? All right, so the premise is this. Um, Penn and Teller, these, they're these two really famous magicians. They're kind of the best at their craft. And they have a show where they invite other magicians to come and perform their best magic tricks, their best magic acts. And the goal is they have to try and fool Penn and Teller. That is, they have to try and do their performance, whether it's you know, card tricks or sword tricks, or maybe something disappearing, or somebody levitating. I've even seen one person that does like a quick change routine. And then they have to try and do it without Penn and Teller knowing how they do the trick. They're the best in the business. They know how it works. And so what ends up happening is, if one of these magicians doesn't fool Penn and Teller, they go up to them, and they don't just like reveal the secret. They, ju- they don't just say, hey, we know how you did this. You know, it's, it's that person's head and this end of the box. It's another person's legs over here. That's how the trick was done. No, what they actually do, it's really cool. They use kind of like uh, insider magic language. So it's like certain sets of words or phrases or maybe a certain hand gesture to communicate to the performers, we know how you did this trick. We know how you did it. But yet, as the audience, we don't do it. The secret's not revealed. It's not spoiled. It's not, it doesn't come out yet. You see, the writer of Hebrews is actually doing something similar in our passage. The writer of Hebrews is saying that there is so much going on in God's first word, in the king's first word, but I know how it works. I know how it works, and you can know how it works too. I can actually give you the secret to understanding what the first word is all about. God's first word is always leading towards his final word. You see, the writer is saying your fathers had the prophets, your fathers had the law. Your, pro- your fathers had tradition and custom and culture. And all those things are fine. But, I, but we have something better. We have something more real. We know what the prophets were actually pointing towards. We know what they were saying, what they were about, how the story ends. We know what's going on, and we know how it all works together. And that's really important for Christians. That's important for us to know. What that means is when we read the Old Testament, when we read our Bibles, when we come to these passages in the Old Testament, we're actually supposed to be looking for Jesus. 
We're supposed to be looking for the final word. We're supposed to see that these are first things that point to final things. And so Abraham's life, it's not about Abraham. It's about Jesus. You see, Abraham is just a shadow. He's just pointing to something better, to something more real. You see, when Abraham is told to go and sacrifice his son, God was going to provide him a, a, a lamb, a substitute, something else. Because Abraham was never meant to pass the test of sacrificing his son. God was. God was going to send Jesus, and he was going to be the one that had to be sacrificed. He was going to be the one that was both the sacrifice and the substitute. David, King David, who ruled and reigned over Israel, his story, it's not about him. It's not about giants falling. It's not about armor. It's not about hiding in caves. It's about Jesus. It's about an heir of the line of David who would reign and rule righteously and sit on the throne forever. And there's only one person who can do that, and it's not David, it's Jesus. You see, we're called to see that all of human history, the entire arc of humanity, is pointing towards one thing, and it's the cross. It's Jesus come into our world. So that's good. That's real. That's what we study. That's what the Bible is about. That is our story. But why is it important? Why do you care? Why should you, why, why should you care about that? Why should you care that human history leans towards Christ? It's because I think it's really important that we understand in our life, even today, even on this side of the cross, there are first things and there are final things. And understanding the difference between something that is first and something that is final is actually crucial to Christianity. So what gives you hope? What do you look to to tell you that you're okay, that things are going to work out, that everything's going well? Is it a first thing? Take, for example, something like our community, Brookhaven, the town we all live in, or most of us live in. Do you look at that and say, if Brookhaven could just change in these three ways, I would be okay. Everything would be better. That would fix it. That's what I need. What about the future? Do we look at next year, 2021, and say, if 2021 could just be easier, everything would be okay. I would be okay. What about the past? Do we look backwards at a season of our life and say, if we can just get back to that, if we can just get back to that season, things will be okay. We'll be okay. Everything's going to work out. Look, those are good things, but they're first things. They're good, they're meant to be enjoyed, they're actually meant to be a blessing, but none of those things are final. None of those things are something that you can put your hope in. None of those things can save you. See, what we actually end up having is a better picture. What we actually end up having is Jesus, the King, who speaks to something better. You see, He doesn't say, I'm going to offer you an ideal community. He doesn't say, I'm going to offer you a future that's easier and better. He doesn't say, I'm going to offer you a past that gets completely fixed and goes back to the way things were. No, Jesus is the final word, and what he promises, he promises to give us himself, God, his exact nature in the flesh. That's what he promises. So that's the king's first word. The first word is the prophets. The first word is the Old Testament. The first word is everything that leads up and points to a better and final word, something more real. At many times and in many ways, God spoke and he promised that he was sending his son. So let's look at the final word. We kind of already said what it is. The final word is Jesus. Jesus is the final word. It is the son. He is the one who made all things and he is the radiance of God's glory. 
So I was reading a John Calvin commentary, kind of getting prepared for this passage, and it's interesting. He notes that it's really hard to understand what's going on in our text, in verse, especially in verse 2 and 3. He says there's no good way to really communicate in human language what it means for Jesus to be the radiance of God's glory. You see, we see the word radiance. Uh, that word can also mean illumination. It can be uh, meaning making something that was dark, uh, light. It can make something that was uh, unknown, known. It, it's, just a, it's a word that has a wide range of meaning. And so what he ends up saying is that God the Father is invisible until he shines through Jesus the Son. That God the Father is actually invisible. There's something about him that isn't seen until it is fully seen through Jesus the Son. That's why Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've actually seen the Father. You can know God. You see, the radiance of God's glory is invisible, but now it's visible. Jesus is exactly God. And he came to us as a person, a person just as real as you or me. You know, a person is something you can know, you can understand. A person makes sense to us. It's better than an idea. It's better than anything else. It's a final word. You see, and we're, we're in the Christmas season. We're in Advent. We're looking forward to Christmas. We're remembering Christ's coming. And in a few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to read from Luke chapter 2. Jesus' birth narrative, how he actually came into the world. And it's, it's amazing, because what you see is even Jesus' coming, his story, the first Advent, it actually tells us, it communicates something about how Jesus is final, that he's the king. If you've ever been around someone that's announced that they're pregnant, and I'll just say this, pregnancy announcements are, are getting wild and crazy, but if you've ever been around someone that's announced they're pregnant, well, what is that? It's the first word. It's saying, at some point, there will be a person who's going to join us in this world. They'll be with us, they'll be among us, and you'll get to know them. But if, if you just have the announcement, whether that's something, somebody coming up and telling you, or you receive a card in the mail, like, what do you actually know about that person? What do you know about that baby? I mean, basically nothing other than they're real. You don't know what color hair, hair they're going to have. You don't know how tall they're going to be. You don't know, like, what their laugh will sound like, or what kind of personality is going to develop. You can't know that. You actually cannot know that until that baby is born and comes into the world and grows up and you get to know them. You see, Jesus is the final word, word because he was born into this world. Jesus is the final word. He's the complete picture. What the prophets had, they were just communicating the pregnancy. Jesus is the birth. He's the real person. He's the exact imprint of God. And he's come into this world so that you can know him. So you can see who he is. He's the full picture. He's the complete story. He is the ultimate reality. And so the final word comes to us. In these last days, that's what our text says. We are in the last days. That's talking about us. That's now. God is speaking to us through his son Jesus, who is our king. So what does it mean for Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, what does it mean for him to be our king? What does it mean that he was born into our world? What is the king like? Well, he purifies sins. He actually restores the broken relationship between God and man. And he's holding the entire universe together. Jesus is the final word right now. Jesus is supreme right now. So what does it mean for Jesus to be supreme? It means that we're living in a tension. 
Jesus has come. He has been born. He has been born into the world. He has lived. He died on the cross, and he has been resurrected, and he's ruling in heaven. So he's the king who came, and he's the king who's coming again. And he has all authority, and he is the heir of all things. Did you hear that? Jesus has all authority. All of it. What does it mean for Jesus to have all authority? It means that Jesus has authority over Satan. Jesus has authority over all demons. Jesus has authority over all the angels. Jesus has authority over the natural universe, over things like hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires, viruses, wars, movements, governments, planets, galaxies, everything. Everything is under his rule and reign. That means you too. That means if you see who Jesus is, if you say he is the king who has come, that means he is supreme over your life. You can't see who Jesus is and think he doesn't get to speak into things like your marriage, like your family, your job, your friends, your likes, your dislikes, what you do and don't do with your body. Jesus is king. He is supreme. He is the final word. He is ruler over everything. Jesus being supreme means that you aren't. I grew up in a town in Huntsville, uh, Alabama. Some of y'all know that. And we actually have a famous landmark um, for the state of Alabama. Some of you may have heard of this. It's kind of famous, maybe more infamous. But in Huntsville downtown, there is a church that has a gigantic Jesus mural. I mean, when I say giant, I mean giant. This thing is a tile mosaic that is 47 feet high and over 150 feet long. This thing is huge. It was put up in the 60s, um, and what makes it famous is, you know, groovy 60s Jesus is doing a classic Jesus pose. He's got his arms out, and in one of his hands, it looks like he's holding a handheld egg beater. And so everybody in town knows this as egg beater Jesus. Uh, And that's kind of funny, and we laugh at that, But what's important to note is that pictures of Jesus aren't enough. You see, I've never looked at egg-beater Jesus and says, that Jesus, he's actually upholding the world by the word of his power. You see, kind, gentle, feel-good, never confronts you, never speaks into your life, always says what you want to hear, Jesus is worthless. He can't do anything. That Jesus can't save you. That Jesus can't purify your sins. That Jesus can't get you to change your mind, much less actually change your heart. You see, we need Jesus to be a king because it matters. It matters because when cancer shows up, you don't need feel-good Jesus. You need a king. When a virus shakes every single aspect of your life and you lose loved ones and pillars of the community, we don't need precious moments Jesus. He's not enough. When everything is falling apart, when everything seems broken, the only hope we have is the final word of God. It is Jesus the King who is holding all things together. He is enough. That's who God sent us. That's what Advent is about. That's who we need. God sending His Son as the final word, it says, this is the King you have. A king who holds everything, who is more powerful than anything, who is over all things. He's over life, he's over death, he's over heaven, he's over hell, everything. That's who Jesus is. Do you know him? Can you submit to a king like that? Can you know a God like that? 
can you see that we have a far better word than anything else there is? That you can cry out to him, you can plead for mercy, you can, you can come to him again and again and again and again. And every time he's going to respond with, come to me when you're weary, come to me when you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's who Jesus is. That's good news. That's an invitation to believe. Would you pray with me? Father, Jesus is better than everything. And we know through your word that he's coming back to make all things new that he's coming back to rescue and redeem the world from everything that is waiting for him. As we wait for Jesus, help us to see that he is good news. Help us to see that the final word is the final word in our life. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all these things in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.